So this is not my introduction, all right? Just I want to be clear on that. I'll tell you when the introduction starts. We're, we're concluding our series on David, First and Second Samuels uh, about David, and the phenom of the biographer of David, genius, is going to give us a lesson in 2 Samuel chapter 24, and it is profound in its implications. The application for our life is heavy and weighty, even when it teaches about God, is expansive the way we think about things, but it's taught in what's called a story told. And I didn't want to go through and botanize the story and lose the story because that's where it's told. You know, like sometimes when you're watching a movie with a friend and they keep pausing it and they go, okay, let me explain to you background. Like, okay, Tom Cruise, this is a real stunt. He did, like, you're kind of killing the buzz. So I'm gonna try to go through the story, telling the story, stopping as infrequently as possible so as to punch that meaning through. So if you want, I would love for you to consider reading 2 Samuel chapter, for homework, 2 Samuel chapter 24 and 1 Chronicles chapters 21 and 22. That's where this story is being told, okay? But to grasp the lessons that I've talked about here, there's two points you need to know. One is that 2 Samuel 21 through 24 are an epilogue. In other words, it's, they're added at the end by this genius author independent of chronology. These aren't the last things David does, but here's the point. We find the lesson in answering, trying to find the answer to the question, why would the author insert this as the last story told about this great king when it's a story about David's most costly sin? In other words, since there's no reason because he's not doing this in order of time, he's intentionally put this here for a purpose. And that purpose is, is for our lesson to learn. So the first way we find that is to, why did he put this last? And the second thing I want to bring up is, it's kind of a nerdy uh, storytelling device that people use in storytelling, and that is, if you want people to understand your big idea or your purpose, you do a thing called bookends, and that is you put your lesson at the very beginning and you put it at the end, the bookends. You make sure you repeat it in the front and the back, and generally your audience won't miss that point, okay? So with that in mind, I'd like to start and get going with my introduction. Okay, I want my time back on my timer, because now it's starting. Ready? You guys ready to start? All right, here we go. <clears throat> His name is David, King David. More is written about David in the Bible than anyone else in the Bible except Jesus, and it's not even close. The story of David is the first real biography in all of ancient literature. David is the first Renaissance man. He's a poet, he's a musician, he's an author. But he's also a warrior, a commander, a king. David is the giant killer. There is no one like David. And his life is one of the few in all of human history that you can say is a hinge of history. Because after David, everything changes. And for this simple reason, is David brings the shadow of the kingdom of God to planet Earth. God's king 
in God's city, bringing God's presence. And this, this story is the last picture of David that this author wants you to remember. It begins in verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. We don't know why exactly. We have some pretty good clues. I'll show you in a moment. But what happens is the Lord allows Satan to go and entice David to sin. And it's the, the sin, the, the thing that he is tempted in doing that he will comply with is to number the troops, to count his soldiers. And it, it is a terrible crime against God. It's an assault to who he is and trusting in him. And it's, it's so bad that even General Joab knows this is a bad idea to number the troops. This is, this is what Joab says when David says, let's number the soldiers. And Joab replied, may, may the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. May my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord desire to do this? Why should he bring this guilt on Israel? Now, this is Joab. Joab is a blunt instrument. Okay, his, his conscience is seared almost numb, if for no other reason than he has deceitfully murdered two men that were his possible rivals, and so he stabs them. And so if this man, his conscience can get a ping that it's a dreadful idea to number the soldiers, then it must be a gong to anyone else who's tender towards the Lord. So why is that, what's so heinous about just numbering the troops? I mean, I don't know if you know, but the fourth book of the Bible is called Numbers. And it's called numbers because God tells Moses, number the troops. Twice. That's how the book starts and that's how it ends. So it's not the thing, it's the motive. And you, you can see in Samuel's description, or in, in the book of Samuel's description, here's how Joab responds in that book. He said, Joab says, may, may the Lord your God add uh, to the people a hundred times as many as there are. But, but why does my Lord King delight in this thing? The chronicler said, why do you desire this? Samuel, the writer of Samuel says, why do you delight in this? And the reason is pride. That's the motive. No, it's, no, it's way more than pride. It's hubris. The, the strength of the king's army is where a king gets his stature. It's how he becomes notorious. That's his fame. That's the source of his protection. The size of his army is the number of soldiers that he has. And it gives him the ability to be aggressive when he wants to be. Now he can be the neighborhood bully. He can push his weight around. And so David, King David, replaces his trust in Jehovah with his own newfound success that Jehovah gave him. That's where David is going for his identity, for his security, for his happiness. And this is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power or the rich boast in their riches. For those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord 
I, the Lord, have spoken. This is a grievous sin for David, but he speaks for all of Israel because they have all turned away from their dependence and their boasting in God, and now they're boasting in their, in their new strength. And, <laughs> and this is a lesson to all of us, to each and every one of us, that God-given gifts can turn into idols. Do you know idols eat their worshipers? That's the nature of idolatry. You die of irony. And what, what God has given you, sometimes you'll see people that they, they're healthy, but they turn their health into an idol, and then they become sick. People that have God-given beauty, but they become compulsive about trying to stay young, and it becomes vanity. And when it becomes vanity, they become ugly. A person's wealth given to them by God can turn into greed when it's idolized, and then you can just see the poverty in their souls. You can look at it this way in David. Look, look, at, look at the radical transformation in David's heart and the paradigm that he sees life through, all of life through. Think back to the David that we love and enjoy, the one we just hope we could be like someday. When his, this glaring contrast now, when he is facing Goliath the Philistine, he mocks the Philistine for his values, for what the Philistine hopes in, what the Philistine desires. He goes out to that battlefield and he says, oh, where is your hope, Philistine? Where, where is your hope? Where is your boasting? You boast in your sword and spear and javelin, but I boast, I hope in... Nothing more than the name of the Lord God, the God of the armies. And now, David, in the last story of his life, is putting his hope in his army. He's putting his hope in the strength of his military. David has become a Philistine. Numbering his troops is showing <laughs> that he he cares this is where he's getting his identity. This is what he's turned into, his significance and his safety. So the story continues where David insists when Joab pushes back and Joab complies. And so he does a survey and it takes nine months and 20 days. I think the writer tells us that's because he has nine months to repent. This is what's called in the Bible a high-handed sin. And it, again, it's such a dreadful sin. This is Joab, the mob enforcer. Look at what it says. It says, but Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was so repulsive to him. This command was also evil in the sight of God. And so he punished Israel. Nine months, 20 days. Survey comes back. It's put on David's desk. This is the size of your army. And no sooner does he get that response that, boom, David is crushed with guilt. God's thumb is now on his back. And he, he says, Lord, I have sinned greatly in this. Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. The very next morning, that prayer is answered. God sends Gad 
a prophet that is a friend of David. They go back decades. And he delivers the consequences. He's going to give, this is from the Lord, he's going to give David three choices of what he wants for his punishment. They're going to be decreasing in duration, but they're going to be increasing in intensity, right? I mean, you might have done this as a parent. We did this with our kids. We're all outside playing kickball, and somebody gets snotty, and we'll just sit them down and say, look, we can do timeout. 30 minutes, you're going to miss the rest of the game. I'll just hit you with a spoon, and you'll be out there before it's your turn to bat again. You choose. It's kind of like that, but nothing like that. Here are the choices. One, you could have three years of famine. You could have three months of being hunted by your enemies. Or you can have three days of a plague brought on by the Lord. It doesn't take David long to consider, and he says, David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us all fall into the hands of the Lord. For his mercy is great, and I and do not let me fall into human hands. And so the Lord sends the angel of the Lord to Israel. And he sends this plague out, and 70,000 soldiers are killed. Soldiers, 70,000. How's that strength of your army now? See, the thing he worshiped is now being destroyed. <laughs> and so I want to, before we move on too much, I, I want to, this is a problem, right? David commits the sin, 70,000 people are killed. That doesn't seem fair. Well, right, let's just look at this for uh, briefly. One is, it's not just David, it's all of Israel. Israel is at war with, with the Lord. Uh, the first sentence, if you remember, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Israel has become, if you remember, the, the days of judges. They have become independent of God and absolutely ungrateful. And they are living now lives the way they want and think all that they have, they're self-made men and women. And because of their pride, because of David personifying that pride, everybody's in this somehow. Second, it doesn't seem fair that David sins and other pay. Isn't that the nature of sin? Don't, don't we, aren't we all paying for somebody else's sin? And when we sin, somebody else pays that in many ways, right? You can see it certainly exaggerated when... Uh, when someone in your house uh, maybe has an addiction and they're not dealing with it, so it, it could be a, one of the parents or one of the children, but <laughs> everyone under that roof is paying, right? Everyone under that roof is paying. So it's the nature of sin that other people have to pay for your decisions. But I would say even most specific to this book, First and Second Samuel, it's one book, but is the, a leader's sin exaggerates the consequences, amplifies the consequences. Because one of the themes of the book is that we are going to be judged for our use and abuse of authority. Whatever authority we have is God-given, and that authority we are reporting back to with God. And we can use our authority for helping other people, for being generous, for being kind, David in his early days. Or we can abuse our authority and throw it around for our own personal gain. 
And whatever that is, we will answer to God for that. And can I just, you know, let's not go Old Testament here. Can you think any time recently throughout maybe all of human history, kings and politicians and people in power make laws and start wars for no other reason than their own increase in wealth? Stupid rules, crazy laws, starting wars so they can get rich. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, it's still happening all the time, everywhere. And the theme when it comes to authority in the Bible is to much given, much will be given account to. We'll be rewarded for the way we use our, our authority. We will be answering for the way we abuse that authority. So let's go back to the storyline. Let's get this thing going, okay? We have the angel of the Lord coming, and he is yielding this sword of a plague. And he has gone now 70,000 in his head count at this point. He's gone to, from Dan to Beersheba, Israel and Judah. And now he's coming into Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the most important city in the Bible, the most important city in the world. It is the capital of Israel. It is the city of David. It's the city of God. And apparently the angel of the Lord comes in and he is threading two mounts. On the west side, it's Mount Sinai, and on the east side is Mount of Olives. And he's standing there at what's called the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Jebusites, Jerusalem used to belong to the Jebusites. So he's owned this threshing floor, this hill, maybe for generations. And he and his four sons are just threshing on the threshing floor. And they look up and they see the angel of the Lord with that bloody sword. And then David from the palace, not far from there, is looking up at that same hilltop and he's seeing that angel. And that, and that sword is backing up and then, look what it's, what does it say next? And then when the angel had stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and he said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, pause, now, stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. God puts a pause to it. Stop. Wait. Wait for what? David. David, wake up. You're seeing what's happening. Do something. Where you're, you've not lost your innocence. You just failed to maintain it. Do something. Be the giant killer again. Be that shepherd that would give his very life to save his sheep. David, do the thing you were meant to do. And David does this. And David looked up and he saw the angel of the Lord standing, remember this, standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended to Jerusalem. And David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. And David said to God, was it, was it not I who ordered the, the fighting men to be counted? I, the shepherd, have sinned and done this wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Lord, my God, let your hand fall upon me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. You know what happened next? David is 
standing in this gap. And he's willing to die. He'll take his whole family to stop this plague. Here's what happened. And then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad, then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And so David, look, now he's in obedience. And then David went up in obedience to the word that, that Gad had spoken in the name of the Lord. He goes, so the angel of the Lord through Gad says, you've got to do an offering, a sacrifice right there on that hill. And so David goes to Aruna and said, uh, I want to I buy that. Now, keep in mind, Aruna saw the angel of the Lord with the sword out, ready to come down. And he said, are you kidding? You can have the land. You can have the ox for the sacrifice. I've got firewood for you. And I've even got some wheat for a sin offering. Like, it's all yours. Take it. Let's stop this thing. And then David responds, no. We're experiencing grace here. And we're going to do this sacrifice. And it, how could I possibly give sacrifice to the Lord that cost me nothing? Isn't that the nature of people responding to the grace of God? Oh, yeah, I want to give. I want to give out of my wallet, not out of your wallet. And so David buys that hill, those ox, that firewood, and the wheat. And then David built an altar of the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then he called upon the Lord, and the Lord answered him with a fire from heaven on the altar of the burnt offering. The Lord approved this offering. And then the Lord spoke to the angel, and he put his sword back into his sheath. End of story. Not a powerful drama that's taking place here. There's weighty applications I'm trying to show you here. And how do we find out what the lesson is that this author is trying to show us? Remember, this is the first biography of anyone in ancient literature, and it ends this way? Why? I think there's three reasons. One is, this is actually a story of the redemption of David. David is redeemed in this story. David lost his way many years before. He's descending into the heart of darkness, this story shows himself to still be a man of God. In this story, his youthful love for the Lord and his innocence is resuscitated. We see here that David returns to be the shepherd that's willing to give up his life for his sheep. As one author put it this way, a scholar, he said, the Lord is in a constant search to help us repent and to make beautiful from our sinful mistakes. The Lord is in a constant search to help us repent and make, a beautiful, make beautiful from our sinful mistakes. And so the Lord pauses that angel so that David might finally wake up and say, be the man of God you were meant to be. The last memory we have of David is that he's a hero once more. That's a great way to end the story. The second way we can find the, the lesson that we're to learn here is we look at the story, and it's actually a culmination of 55 chapters. The lesson is this. David is the very best that we have, and he's not enough. The promises that were given to Adam and Abraham and to Jacob about the coming king 
this man fulfills so many of those, but he is still a son of Adam. And every son of Adam is totally depraved. In other words, if David can't get this right, then who are we to say we even have a hope? And so we need to maintain our hope in the promises of God, but our hope needs to be directed towards the right thing. A different kind of David, like a different kind of Adam. Not a son of Adam, but a second Adam. Not a son of David, but a second David. One who is not contaminated by original sin. And one of the ways that the Lord teaches us to know what specifically to look for, it's very clever. It's genius. It's sovereign. It's power. It's this, that threshing floor. That threshing floor. Remember the story? Angel of the Lord is poised and is paused right there at the north of Jerusalem at Aruna's threshing floor that's in between Mount Zion and Mount of Olives, the very place where it says, let me read it again, and David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth. This is the place where the angel of the Lord stands between heaven and earth. And there's another name for Aruna's threshing floor. It's called Mount Moriah. And David buys Mount Moriah. Because that is a sacred place. It is, <laughs> it, is, it is a place where a king stood the gap to save his sheep. And it's the very same place that Solomon will build the temple. Look, let me just keep reading here. The first sentence of chapter 22 in Chronicles says, And then David said, The house of the Lord God is to be here. On this threshing floor. And also the altar of burnt offerings to Israel. And so when Solomon builds the temple. Look what it says in Chronicles 3. Second Chronicles. And then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. On the Mount Moriah. Where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. The place, David, place provided by David. <laughs> Mount Moriah is the place where heaven touches earth. Because that's the place where blood pays for our sins. Mount Moriah has quite a story. It starts 4,000 years before Christ, 2,000 years, or 4,000 years before us, 2,000 years before Christ, where God said, I want to see your undivided love. Abraham, Abraham, bring me your son Isaac, your only son, the one you love, and bring him to Mount Moriah that he might be sacrificed for me. And Abraham does it. He takes his son, his only son, the one that he loves, and ties him to an altar and has a knife and his hand is up and then an angel comes and says, Abraham, Abraham, don't do it. But you can still offer a sacrifice and I've provided this ram. And so he takes the ram and he slaughters that and makes that as sacrifices. You need to be looking for a future fulfillment of the Lord providing a sacrifice for you. A thousand years after Abraham, at 1000 BC, here we are with David. And now he has purchased Moriah. And in this storyline we see, show me the wrath of God and his hatred towards sin. 
And when that angel of the Lord comes to Moriah and his arm is stretched out, it is put to a stop because a king and a good shepherd says, I will give my life for my sheep. And then he's told that Solomon will build the temple there. And at that temple, once a year, the day of atonement, animals are slaughtered and that blood covers our sin. It's just an interest payment. It doesn't pay the debt. But it'll buy us some time on that very mountain. A thousand years after David's story is Jesus. The Lamb of God. The King of all kings. The Good Shepherd. And in that story, the question is, demonstrate to me your undivided love. And so God so loved the world that he gave his son, his only son, the one that he loved. So that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. He sent that son up to Mount Moriah. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. How's that? Because this undivided love also was demonstrated on Mount Moriah that day with the demonstration of God's hatred and wrath towards sin. Because when this substitute was provided and the angel of the Lord and the wrath of God was coming down upon Jesus, there was no stopping it. And so he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he said, it is finished. No more interest payments. I'm paying the principal. That's, that's the story that's being unfolded here. Mount Moriah is the place where God touches man because of the blood of Jesus. It's the place where heaven touches earth. One author says, Mount Moriah therefore becomes the fulcrum for the universe. I would say that Mount Moriah becomes the fulcrum for every single human soul. Because you have to answer the question, what are you going to do with Mount Moriah? That is the fulfillment of many of the promises that were made to Adam and Abraham and to David that a substitute would be provided on that very mountain so that you might not be judged but have eternal life because he will pay a debt that you can't afford to pay so that you might receive a righteousness that you don't deserve, his righteousness. I mean, I, when I see this played out, I step back. You see the, the level of the depth of this truth? It's a vivid picture of the sovereignty of God, is it not? Sovereignty means God has a plan. And, you know, that's good. I have plans. But he has the power to make the plan happen. And he yields that power any way he wants. And his plan is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's bringing his kingdom here. That's the point. Make way for the kingdom of God. You can stand in front and be trampled, or you need to follow behind and be led. But there's no place for co-pilots. He's a king. He doesn't consult us. He tells us, and then we obey. That's how monarchies work. <laughs> this, this whole storyline is a, is a call to surrender. If he's in charge, if he can, 
it's not, it's not troublesome to him. Don't make it, this, I'm, I don't mean it that way. It's like if he can orchestrate just this little piece of real estate to constantly be pointing in the same direction of the kingdom of God is coming and what to hope for and who to hope for, doesn't it make us want to step back and say, wait a minute, one, are some of you in this kingdom of God? Are you one of his children? Are you putting your faith in your own good deeds like David was with his army? Or are you putting your faith in the work of Jesus Christ? He died so that you wouldn't have to. And he rose to prove the Lord accepted his sacrificial payment. And then there's another level here, isn't there? Where you just say, oh, he is sovereign, by the way. He is sovereign. He is a sovereign. He's a king. He's the king of all kings. He's to be obeyed. We are to follow, <laughs> not to advise. And maybe just this story all by itself kind of sobers us up, does it? It just sobers us up saying, wait a minute. He's eminent. He's close. But he's transcendent. I need to live a life completely surrendered to him because that's the only one that makes sense in light of his title. He doesn't share the throne is the point. He's the king. This clever writer ends the story in chapter 24 of 2 Samuel because he wants us to see that God is out to help redeem even the Davids. He's trying to show us that David was the best we have, but we've got to keep looking. And he's given us more clues here. And the third one is because, well, frankly, he's added a bookend. You know, the bread and butter go-to way to make sure people understand the big idea of a story and a story told is to put your theme at the very front and the very back. You put it at the beginning and the end, the introduction and the conclusion, and most people, they won't miss it. And in the story of First and Second Samuel, technically it's one book, it starts with Hannah being in a temple crying out to the Lord for justice. And it ends with David on the hill of the new temple crying out to the Lord to stop justice. It starts with Israel saying, we want a king. We want to put our identity in a, in a king that's going to give us security and strength. And it ends with a king that has put his security and his strength in not the Lord, but the number of soldiers that he has. And the point is, again, David, he's the best we have. There's no one like him, and he's not enough. Don't stop hoping just hope in the right thing. A second Adam, a second David. His name is David. King David. More is written about David than anyone in the Bible except Jesus. It's not even close. He's the original Renaissance man. He's a poet, a musician, an author, but he's also a warrior, a commander, a king. He's a giant killer. There's no one like David. And he's not enough. And his life is one of the few in all of human history that you can say is a hinge point for all of history. Because after David, the world is never the same. For no other reason than David brings a shadow of the kingdom of God to planet Earth. Where we have God's king in God's city bringing God's presence. 
so that we might know what the kingdom of God might be like. Thy kingdom come, pray this prayer. Thy will be done. And now David serves in his renaissance as an arrow. He's pointing towards that kingdom, that future king, Jesus, and Jesus' second coming. When Jesus came the first time, he brought God's king into God's city and bringing God's presence. So he's leading the way for his second coming. He'll be like David the warrior. David serves as a guide to us. He's a warning to us, isn't he? Like, guard your heart. It is the wellspring of life. And if David could be so good and pure and be corrupted this level, then how about you and me? Sure. And David is a foreshadow of things to come. The good shepherd who did, in fact, give his life for his sheep so that he might bring us into the kingdom of God. And now we long for this day, the kingdom of God returning. God's king into God's city, bringing God's presence on Mount Moriah. And listen, this is our only hope. The misery, the evil that mankind has brought upon itself cannot be fixed by a political party or a person. It is only in the return of the king. That's where our hope is. That's what we live for, the return of the king. That's the lesson that this writer wants us to believe. Hmm. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Revelation says, and Jesus, the one sitting on the throne, said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said, I'm finished. <laughs> I'm the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I give them freely from the spring of the water of life. And so he took me in the spirit to the great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. And it was descending from heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God, and it sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper. It was as clear as crystal. And all of the nations will bring their glory and honor into this city. Lord, we long for that day, and we admit, we confess that we put our hope in things that are trivial or temporary or bent by the sins of Adam. We argue and we fight and we ruin relationships because we've placed hope in the wrong places. Lord, I'd ask that you would help us just understand where our true hope should lie and the clues that you've given us to live by, that we might be enjoying your presence and the fellowship of our brothers and sisters more effectively. Lord, I'd ask that you would pierce our conscience when we are making your gifts that you've given us into idols and we've made them more important and we're putting our hope and our identity and our safety in those things so that we might not be devoured by those things that we might enjoy them and give them back to you or in many respects i i'd ask that you would keep us fully aware of the use of the authority that you've given us even if we're just just one person ahead of our little brother or sister just that we have a responsibility in that whether we own a company or 
just throw papers for a living, whatever it might be. So, for we long for the day of heaven on earth, your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives as it is in heaven. Tell you what, let's do this. We're going to sing a song about the kingdom, what it's like to live in the kingdom of God from the Beatitudes. But before that, why don't we all stand together? And you might want to, if you want, maybe hold the hand of somebody next to you that you might have met during our meet and greet time, or not, or not. not, Hey, okay. Cooties. Let's say the Lord's, let's do the Lord's prayer together as a church. Okay, Grace, let's do this. Ready? Let's go. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We forgive in our debtors. Lead us not and deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you.